Brian Black was the kid in Puyallup, Washington with boundless potential, always striving to do more. He excelled in the classroom and get this, both on the wrestling mat and at state chess tournaments, go figure. And when he grew up, he took his potential to the United States Army, where Staff Sergeant Brian Black conquered Ranger School and Special Forces selection. Sergeant Black was not just a warrior and a protector, he was a healer. As a Green Beret in the elite third group, he served as a medic, always encouraging and caring for those about him. And on October 4th, Sergeant Black was killed in Niger. Our hearts ache for his wife, Michelle, and for his sons, Ezekiel and Isaac, and for his parents, Hank and Karen. Their son, husband, father, friend, and patriot will be remembered. Precious few among us dedicate our God-given ability to protection of our country. But as Sergeant Black's father, Hank, so eloquently said, some people could, would, should, others do, and Brian did. Most Americans don't know what happens when we lose one of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, a coast guardsman in combat. So let me tell you what happens. Uh, their buddies wrap them up in whatever passes as a shroud, puts them on a helicopter as a routine, and sends them home. Uh, their first stop along the way is when they're packed in ice, uh, typically at the, at the airhead, and then they're flown to use a Europe, uh, where they're then packed in ice again and flown to Dover Air Force Base, where Dover takes care of the uh, remains, uh, embalms them, uh, meticulously dresses them in their uniform with the, rebel with the medals that they've earned, the emblems of their service, and then puts them on another airplane linked up with a casualty officer escort that takes them home. A very, very good movie to watch if you haven't ever seen it is Taking Chance, uh, where this is done in a movie HBO setting. Chance Phelps was killed under my command right next to me. And it's worth seeing that if you've never seen it. So that's the process. While that's happening, a casualty officer typically goes to the home very early in the morning and waits for the first lights to come on. And then he knocks on the door, typically the mom and dad will answer, wife, and if there is a wife, this is happening in two different places, if the parents are divorced, three different places, and the casualty, the casualty officer uh, proceeds to break the heart of a family member, and stays with that family until, uh, well, for a long, long time, even after the internment. Uh, so that's what happens. Who are these young men and women? They are the best 1% this country produces. Most of you, as Americans, uh, don't know them. Many of you don't know anyone who knows any one of them. But they are the very best this country produces. And they volunteer to protect our country when there's nothing in our country anymore that seems to suggest that selfless service to the nation is uh, not only appropriate but required. But that's all right. Um, who writes letters? to the families. Typically, the company commander, in my case as a Marine, the company commander, battalion commander, regimental commander, division commander, secretary of defense, typically the service chief, commandant of the Marine Corps, and the president. 
typically writes a letter. Typically, the only phone calls the family receives are the most important phone calls they can imagine, and that is from their buddies. In my case, hours after my son was killed, his friends were calling us from Afghanistan, telling us what a great guy he was. Those are the only phone calls that really matter. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a very special episode for you guys today. My guest is Michelle Black. Uh, She is the wife of Staff Sergeant Brian Black and the author of the book, Sacrifice, A Gold Star Widow's Fight for the Truth. Uh, Michelle, thank you for coming on today. How's it going? Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me on. It's going well. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to do this. I know we wanted to kind of do a podcast, you know, a couple of months ago, um, but we're finally here to do it. Um, So let's start with, um, you know, there's a lot to cover, but let's start with where you're from and uh, maybe you can sort of walk us through, you know, how you met Brian and then maybe if you want to talk about his career in the Army as well. Okay, absolutely. Um yeah, I was raised in a small town in California, uh, out near Bakersfield, um, kind of in the high desert area called Tehachapi. So that's where I was raised. Um, went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo for college. And afterwards, I thought, all right, I'm going to take a little break, um, just mess around. So I went up to uh, Mammoth Lakes where I'd spent a lot of time growing up as well and um, thought, all right, I'm going to, you know, teach snowboarding for a while and just be kind of a ski bum. So I did that and Brian walks into church one night and that's kind of where that all got started. So um, we started setting up hiking trips um, and then backpacking trips. And after probably a whole summer, we pretty much decided to get married. (laughs) So it was pretty quick. Um, And so we did that, had a couple kids, you know, and uh, it was 2008 and the economy crashed. And um, when I met him, he was actually, uh, he had just finished college. Brian was, you know, brilliant. So he had actually finished college at 20 years old. Um, yeah. And so he decided he wanted to be a day trader doing stocks. And he had heard from a friend of his that, um, who was a day trader that to improve, um, like risk analysis to work on that, to play online poker Mm. and that would help. So he had begun playing online poker for a living. Um, but it started out just as, you know, kind of to help him with that risk analysis. And then he realized he could make a lot of money doing it. So when he finished college, he moved up to also be a ski bum. And then to support himself, he played, you know, poker. Um, 
so by the time we got married and had kids, that's that pretty much supported us. And I worked at a bank and, you know, instructed skiing up until uh, we started having kids. And, and then the economy Is he from crashed. California as well? No, he was, his dad was a Marine, so he was an army brat, or military okay. brat. He he grew up all over, um, and his mom had finally kind of set up roots in Washington State. So he spent, you know, I wouldn't say he grew up in Washington, but that's where he spent the most time. Um, when his dad was gone, that was kind of their home base. So, Yeah. So he was more from Washington, but his his um, mom's whole family and dad's whole family was from California. So he'd been skiing in the Mammoth Lakes area with one of his uncles several times. So that's what kind of brought him there. I see. I see. So then um, in 2008, is that when he enlisted or was that when he decided I want to join the army? Well, in 2008, we ended up. it was actually 2009. So in 2008 is when the arm, uh, like regulations, um, on internet gambling started to really tighten Mm. and then, um, the economy crashed. So we were going, okay, we've got to figure something out. But unfortunately, despite having, you know, both of us having degrees, neither of us had worked in our fields. So we could not get hired anywhere. So he finally, in 2009, just went, how about I join the military? He'd always wanted to go and be a Navy SEAL or a Green Beret. So I thought, well, you know, at least he goes out, he gets to do something that he's always wanted to do, and he has a good time, and then um, we figure this thing out because we need, you know, we need income, we need housing, we need, you know, insurance, we've got babies. So that's kind of what led to him joining in 2009. Okay, and can we talk about sort of his progression through the Army into Special Forces? Absolutely. Yeah, he, um, the first year he was, he just went in as um, as a medic, and we got stationed at Fort Carson, and we were there for about a year and a half, and he was already it's just the way Brian was. He needed to constantly have something going on. So he had a million side jobs on top of his regular job in the military. And I could tell he was getting bored. So within the first year, he just went, I want to go out for special forces. I want to go to SFAS. So of course I'm like, whatever, I'm already staying home with the kids and managing this. Um, we had a kid on the autism spectrum. So I couldn't really work at that time because he was a full-time job. He couldn't even make it through a day at school. So um, Brian just went, I want to do SFAS. And I thought, whatever, it's, <laughs> you know, there's nothing you can do to help me here. So um, he did that and got selected. Um, you know, I think it was, oh gosh, I, I want to say the, I want to say he got selected in the fall of 2000. 11 and by the summer of 2012 we were moving to Fayetteville so um yeah we were there he um was assigned Arabic and he would be an 18 Delta uh, medical sergeant and so we spent the next several years with him just going through the Q course so we ended up you know pretty much straight into uh SF 
um, you know, not long after he signed on. So, yeah. So then, <clears throat> so he became a Green Beret. Uh, he was in Special Forces. Uh, and how long were you an Army uh, family at this point? Um, let's see. He graduated the, let's see. if He, he went in, uh, we moved to Fayetteville in 2012, and he had signed on in 2009, and he graduated the CUBE course in 2015. So, I mean, not long, you know, maybe, maybe five, not even five years, you know. Four or okay. five years, yeah, pretty quick. Okay, and at this point, you know, typically the the folks I interview, uh, you know, were in the military in some capacity, uh, but your, you know, you were married to an army soldier. So then, does that looking at that life, it's it's sort of the the other aspect of army life and having a family. Um, what was that like for you, like just being an army wife and you know, dealing with uh, Brian's job? You know, it was, for me, it was very eye-opening. I grew up um, pretty much as far from military as a person could be. I grew up with my dad and my grandfathers on both sides were um, small business owners. So no one I knew um, growing up was in the military. Brian's dad was the first person I met who was military. So I'd never even stepped foot on a base. So, um, yeah, it was, it was very eye opening. Um, what I found is I really liked the, uh, patriotism. I liked the, um, I liked how regimented people are in the military, how there's, you know, everything is very, you get up early, you, cause I, growing up, that's how my dad was to run a small business. You have to be very methodical. You have to be, um, very disciplined. And so it was interesting seeing the discipline on the military side of it. And I could see the value in it. And I really appreciated that, that that would automatically be instilled into the soldiers. And also that my kids would have that instilled to them in them growing up around, um, the military. So, um, for me, that was great. Um, there were a lot of, it was just, it was so much to learn. It felt like almost going into a foreign country, just going on base for the first time. I mean, the fact that you could go and there's a commissary, which I had no clue what that meant when I first got there. It's like a whole different language even. <laughs> you know, it took me a while to figure out that commissary meant grocery store, and that a post exchange is basically, you know, like going to a Target or a Walmart, you know, um, classics. All of this stuff took me a while to to figure out and that it was more affordable than, than doing these things off base. So what I wasn't used to was the amount of control the military had over those living on base. Um, and I understand why when you've got young soldiers um, who are, you know, 17, 18, 19, joining and starting families and, you know, haven't really been out and learned how to, you have to kind of control that when you're talking about, you know, military housing, because you've got such a wide range of people who aren't, um, you know, they're still maturing adults. And so to be older and coming into that situation was very eye-opening, because 
I, you know, I was 20, I want to say I was 27, 28 when Brian joined. So. And when you say control, like, what do you mean? Like just regulations and things like that? Yeah. Things like, you know, fences and they're just, you know, like it, they're just, yeah, there were a lot more rules on base. I was so used to just running my own life. And not having somebody be able to, you know what I mean? Unless I was, say, living in an apartment and, and they had, like, you know, strict rules or an HOA. There just was a lot more involvement from the military in your day-to-day lives. Right. But you think that that's sort of necessary, especially for the younger soldiers and, and their families? Yeah, I do. Because I, I can see where that can be very problematic when you've got so many people going so many different directions deployed. And, you know, yeah, it was it was interesting to see, but I understood it. And you were given the option of living off base. So it, it's not like you were um, beholden to that. If you really wanted to, you could live off base and control, you know, your own destiny, which you know, or your own life more. So. Right. So can you talk about uh, what Brian's job was on the special forces team? Uh, well, I mean, just as the medical sergeant, you know, really because um, he did go to Afghanistan once, but he was on a B team there and I don't, he did get off the base a little bit, but it wasn't really in a, um, you know, he wasn't really doing patrols, that type of thing. So when he was in Niger, um, the real job he was doing there um, was working with the indigenous people, helping them, you know, if, if they had any sort of medical issues, if he could, he would help them out. Um, so I think just the typical Green Beret thing, you know, you, you kind of ingratiate yourself to the locals by providing any sort of medical care they need. And um, we were there, or th- his team was there in a by, with, and through um, capacity. So they were there just to t- basically train the uh, Nigerian uh, troops. So to help them protect their own borders against militant activity. So they were going on patrols with them and just kind of teaching them, you know, the okay. day-to-day in and out of, of things. So Right, and yeah. that's sort of like a classic special forces mission, basically. Right. Um, so he had an, a deployment to Afghanistan, and then did he have several to Africa or just the one? This was his second one. Okay. And it was in the same region? Uh, similar. He, he was actually more north, closer to Nigeria in the first one in an area called uh, Marathi. And so they had actually just set up this outpost in Wallam, I believe. And I think there may have been one or two other teams that had deployed there before they came into Wallam. Okay. Okay. So then in 2017, he deployed there uh, with his team, uh, uh, something obviously went wrong. His team was ambushed, and uh, in total, four Americans were killed. Um, you know, I remember when it happened. You know, people were talking about it. You know, there's articles, and you know, you think, oh, "Man, that sucks." And um, you know, we want to know what happened after. Uh, you know, they investigate or whatever, uh, or, or whatever they're willing to talk about publicly anyway. Uh, I know for you it's different, you know, obviously your family. So, 
But um, there was a lot of different, uh, you know, reports stating that different things happened or, you know, this is why this happened or whatever. And it it seemed to be kind of cloudy and and the actual story wasn't very clear. Um, You know, in your book, you uh, sort of highlight what happened and then your sort of journey to figuring out what happened uh, when dealing with the military. Uh, and it's, uh, I think it's well worth a read for all Americans to, um, to understand how some of this works and then to understand how uh, unfortunate it is that the, uh, the military has, you know, sort of, uh, me- to, according to some people, sort of, uh, you know, messed up the investigation. The, the right people or some of the right people weren't held accountable. Um, can we talk about some of that maybe from the, the, the beginning of you starting to think that uh, something isn't right in, in terms of what they're telling you and then walking through that process? Right. So one of the first things that we heard was just um, initially uh, the the main colonel, um, uh, Colonel uh, Moses, he came to our house right after it happened and just said, listen, you know, they were on a routine patrol. Um, you know, we know very little at this time. And as, as more becomes available, we'll get back to you. Um, you know, then, then we begin hearing, well, the team um, was actually not on a, they were on a routine patrol. That's what they told us, but they actually misled us according to news reports. So the team misled higher ups and went on a two day mission and to chase down a terrorist. And while they said it was routine patrol, they were actually on a kill capture mission. And I thought that's, that's odd. You know, so pretty much the last time we heard between the the time of the incident and being briefed by the military um, almost seven months later, um, the last we officially heard from the military was that colonel coming and saying, oh, they were on a routine patrol and we'll update you later. Well, they didn't update us. Um, so all we have to go on at that point are all of these articles coming out all over the news saying this is a team that acted like a bunch of cowboys. They went rogue. They misled those higher up the chain of command and went on a kill capture mission to chase down a terrorist. Um, so we're hearing all of this and, and the focus became this one con op. Um, so it was that this con op had been cut and pasted um, they were, it stated that they were going on a civ male reconnaissance mission when in fact they were going on a kill capture, but knew that they couldn't get approval for it. So they just, um, stated that it was civ male. Um, and then I find out that it was, they were sent on a two day mission, but that there were two more con ops and that these guys, you know, kept being pushed further ahead. So the story kept changing and there was a lot more um, just media coming out on these guys going rogue. But also then we had things like the ISIS video coming out. And, um, you know, and National Geographic had done a piece called Chain of Command 
on my husband's team. And, you know, it, it was kind of ironic because the colonel who had come to my house, he was, you know, one of the prime people, one of the main focuses in this chain of command series. And he's he's missing, you know, so all of these this chain of command that now we need answers from, they're conspicuously absent from our lives um, and from answering any questions or letting us know like, hey, what, what happened those days, you know, to my husband, to the team, why were they up there? Um, all we hear is blame through the media and then they start releasing names of like the team captain. I mean, these are active duty Green Berets that just, I don't know where they're getting their names. Then they're releasing releasing photos. Um, so I'm left to believe that those are things being leaked by other military personnel. I, I don't know where else media would find it, but but I don't know, you know. So uh, the whole thing was just very um, confusing for me as someone who had never been around military before Brian had joined. And at that point, he'd been in about seven years. So it was a lot for me to kind of sort through and try to figure out. And fortunately, I had my father-in-law who was an officer in the Marines, and he helped me start kind of sifting through a lot of it. So yeah, Um, where else should I go with this? Do you want me to get into kind of what I figured out after that? well, yeah, well, yeah, we, we can we can walk through that. Um, so I have a question. In your book, you uh, you detail you know this meeting you had with army officials and, and I guess some lawyers. Was that seven months after the event? Yes. Okay, and this was the first you know aside from the general um, you know talking to you in your home. This is the first official anything you've heard from them regarding the situation. Correct. Okay, so then ultimately, let's we'll go back again, but we'll sort of fast forward um, quickly just so I can uh, make this point. So then, the Pentagon has ended their review of the the ambush, and um, uh, essentially, there were several junior officers that were blamed, um, and and there wasn't a lot of accountability at the higher end of the of the you know the command spectrum. Um, uh, was it after that meeting that you said, okay, we really need to, uh, you know, dive into this and and figure out exactly what happened? It was, yeah. Um, because what ended up happening was that I assumed and I expected, and I think my father-in-law did too, we both were saying, okay, you know, we're not getting the answers yet, but you know, we need to be patient and believe that the longer they put into this investigation, the more answers we're going to get and all of our questions will be answered. And going in, that was how the um, the team that briefed us made it sound. Hey, you have any questions? You know, we will answer them. We will take as long as you want. We will fast forward. We will back up whatever you want us to do. Um, which was interesting because as I began to press and ask certain questions that were very specific to the con ops and the orders and where they came down from and who was responsible for which pieces of which con ops, 
the attitude in the room changed. The people briefing us became very defensive and the lawyer uh, began speaking over the general who was briefing us. And that was a huge alarm for me. Right, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so according, so w when you left the meeting, right, like officially, they were telling you, were they continuing the, the narrative, oh, they continued, uh, or they misled us to run this operation? Was that what they were saying at the meeting? Yeah, they, they were telling us that Captain Perizzini had um, cut and pasted the CONOP and that um, it said that they were on a civ mill recon mission, but there was no doctrinal definition for a civ mill recon mission. And this was a very serious mistake and that I needed to trust them, even though they couldn't really explain to me why it was a serious mistake or why they felt that that was a bigger problem than the fact that the next two con-ops, which led directly to the team being ambushed, um, were not as important. Even mm. though the team had said they'd push back and they kept downplaying that and they said, well, no, the team didn't push back. They said they preferred not to go. And I would find out later that that wasn't true either. Okay, so can you explain what a CONOP is for some of the people in the audience who might not know? Yeah, a CONOP is a concept of operations report. It basically is what, um, if a team's going out, they put it down, they fill out this report to kind of state, this is where we're going, this is what we're doing. Um, it helps to make sure that they get all the necessary assets and equipment that they need to go on this mission, and that's why it's sent higher up the chain. So everybody you know, in commanding positions can say, okay, yeah, this looks great. And we do have the assets necessary for this mission. So essentially what actually happened, they were on, were they on a civ mill mission to begin with? Well, initially, and that's what's so confusing. So the first mission, they got information the night before that there was a two-hour window in which this terrorist was going to be down at this town called Tilloa, or up at this town along the border called Tilloa. And the team needed to go up there, but it would be a four-hour drive, and it would take them at least two hours to pack. So even though there was only a two-hour time window for this piece of information, um, they wanted the team to go up. So the team goes, okay, but by the time we get up there, that time window is no longer relevant, but um, we'll do it. So they began to pack, and then um, they got called around 11 o'clock at night and said, hey, you know, shut it down. We're going to have you guys go up tomorrow morning instead, and we're going to send, you know, this this truck um, from Niami um, down to you guys and have them drive, you know, over to uh, Tilawa with you. So um, it's some sort of special reconnaissance vehicle. So they go, okay, whatever. Um, so this, and I, I believe it was just a, kind of like a, an intelligence vehicle where they would take it with them and they can collect intelligence. So the guys go, okay, great. But by now this piece of intelligence that they're running off of is, you know, it's already expired. And by the time they go up in the morning, it's going to be over 12 hours old. 
So at that point, the captain went, well, we'll at least go in. We'll meet up with the civilians, do kind of a little um, check there. And then we'll also meet and do a KLE with the um, leaders at the military base. So he puts together a mill recon. And they go up there. And that's what got picked apart as this is cut and pasted. It wasn't Civ Mill. Yeah. So, I mean, it's splitting hairs. Right. On something that's, you know, not the, the most important factor in figuring out what happened exactly. Yeah. Okay. So then, and, and you speak about this in, in detail in your book, but um, in this meeting, you were... Uh, asking questions about the con ops when they were talking about it. So while they were out, they received two more from the base? Correct. So they were getting calls from the um, from the AOB and the AME, Um And these orders were actually coming all the way down from... Uh, so it started out, it was just, you know, those in control at the AOB. But... What happened was, so they, okay, let me back up. They were in Tilawa. They completed that mission. They were heading home. So that was actually a successful mission. Didn't see the terrorists. Um, Nobody had seen them, you know, so they're headed back. On their way back, they get a call from the AOB and Niame saying, hey, listen, we got another piece of SIGINT. And um, we believe these guys are closer to the Mali border and we want to turn you guys around, have you go up there, exploit what we believe is the campsite and create a blocking position um, just in case, you know, you find anybody up there. And the team goes, well, you know, we've got an eight vehicle convoy um, and there are no roads. We've got tired Nigerians. None of us had slept the night before because we were packing. We are running low on food and water. But if that's what you want us to do, we'll do it. But the only way we can have a successful mission and a successful blocking position up in that area um, is with a Helleborn unit. So we'd like to bring in Team Arlet because they can successfully create a northern blocking position, which we can't do. In our trucks, we're driving, you know, two to five miles an hour at night using nods through the dark, trying, you know, trying not to attract attention because the whole area, it was what was known as the Wild West of Niger. So up there, really, there are only militants and a few farmers. And really, it's it's a free fire zone because no one is allowed to be up there um, outside walking around at night unless they want to get shot. So it's known throughout the country that if you are out in that region at night, um, you will be shot on site, or if you are on a motorcycle anytime, day or night, you will be shot. So that's how um, <laughs> that's how wild it is up there. It's just if you're up there, you are a terrorist. So um, they knew if we go up there, we're going to only be spotted by terrorists if we're spotted. So you know, us going up there with an apical convoy through the night is is not a good thing, and we're not going to be able to create a blocking position to the north. And also, we we need some sort of built-in Kazavak. We need um, some sort of close air support. So, and there there was none for this team. My husband's team didn't. You know, there there just aren't many assets in Africa. 
So they went, we absolutely will not go unless we've got Arlo with us. So um, that's when it went higher up the chain. So now Lieutenant Colonel Painter becomes involved and begins pushing these missions. And now that includes several higher ups. So it's Lieutenant Colonel Painter, Colonel Moses, and General um, Marcus Six. So now they're all involved in pushing this mission forward. And that's when more con ops are created and approved through all levels um, on on that continent now. So, yeah. So this other team, was that a different ODA? Yes, they were a Helleborn unit. They were stationed out of Arlet, and they worked with an EFON, which is a um, Special Forces Nigerian unit. Okay, so they were, and then, you know, on top of the fact that uh, the men from your husband's team, everybody's tired, um, you know, exhausted from not sleeping, and then to have to, you know... uh, if anyone's been sleep deprived, you know, at work or whatever it may be, you realize that, you know, you the only thing you're thinking about is getting home and going to sleep. And now this team of special forces soldiers and, and their um, their local counterparts are now being told to uh, potentially assault, a, you know, a terrorist position. Um, so. Uh, so then Team Arlet. uh they were ordered to then join this operation, but were turned around? Correct. So um, at that point, when they're sitting there on the ground um, discussing this with those higher up the chain, they go, okay, we're going to do this multi-team raid. They order my husband's team to start driving north because it's going to take them about 10 to 12 hours to get to the position they need to be at before sunrise. And they go, okay, you guys start heading up there. Meanwhile, we're going to create the con ops and we're going to do this big, you know, um, video teleconference and, you know, get everything squared away with Team Arlet, have them present their plan and then move forward. So my husband's team takes off um, driving through the night with their team and, or with their counterparts. And um, when they get up to, uh, close to the border to the position they need to be in, they are told that there was a wind, uh, sandstorm and that Team Arlet got turned around and will no longer be joining them. So then at, at this point, was there another CONOP created that ordered them to proceed anyway or were they just told you have to proceed? Well, that's kind of the tricky part. So they there was another con op, but they reworked it. And within the con op, there's what they call, I believe, the five W's. You know, who, what, when, where, why, typical. Um, but they forgot to. And within that, they always do a second threat assessment to make sure that, hey, you know, earlier it showed that the threat assessment was high enough that we the threat assessment was high enough uh, showed us that the threat was high enough that we needed two teams right we needed the built-in Kazabak, we needed the close air support so this time they didn't run a second threat assessment seeing whether or not the threat level had diminished enough to um, make it safe for my husband's team to go up alone that was not in uh, this is the third 
um, con op that they were reworking. So um, they were sent up without that being done, and they didn't have close air support. All they had was a um, what they use are these uh, drones, which have um, very limited sight, and they are shared assets throughout the country. And this particular drone was running out of fuel. So it would make it with them up to the border, but it would not make it with them back to their base in Wallam. So the the real issue, or I don't want to say the real, but one of or, or the one of the biggest factors in, in the ambush was them getting sent ahead, even without Team Arlet. Correct. Okay, so then. But if they acknowledge that that was the issue, then that would mean that several of the higher ranking folks on the the chain of command would also be in trouble or liable in some way. Right. And and there were multiple pieces to this. Like they were working outside of their approval matrix for short suspense missions. The this this short this short of a suspense this mission was so short suspense that they didn't have time to notify everybody and get them on board before sending the team ahead. So they were working outside their own approval matrix. I um, see. Yeah, and they also, um, they had no QRF plan either. So there was absolutely no QRF. In fact, the Nigerian um, military back in uh, Niame were so concerned when they heard about it that they actually sent their own QRF down to Wallam um, uh, in the form of vehicles because they thought this was a bad idea. And so, but the uh, the American military did nothing. And then, um, I believe it was sometime after the ambush, the French the French military was able to send um, some kind of uh, close air support aircraft to sort of buzz over the area and um, sort of scare the rest of the militants off, if I'm correct. That is exactly right. In fact, one of the men, um, and I wish I brought the quote with me today, when I interviewed him in particular, he told me, you know, it was the French who showed up. It was the French who saved our lives. And, you know, like, you know, I, w- I wish the Americans had done anything for us. But in the end, it was the French who, you know, got us out of there. So they really credit the French with with them still being alive today. And I think that's very accurate. Yeah, the, the French are um, heavily involved in counterterrorism operations in Africa. Um, you know, they're routinely fighting the you know, different groups and, and things like that. Um, so when the ambush took place, um, the element that your husband was in got separated from the rest of the convoy. Is that basically what happened? Yes. So the, so then they're sort of in this fire zone, you know, everybody's getting shot at. So the entire convoy is trying to run, basically. Um, and then when the French jets came later on, that backed them off the rest of the convoy? Uh, somewhat. It's a lot more complicated than that. So, um, I mean, when the French jets came, that definitely scared away all of the um, militants that were on the ground. Um, the convoy... As they moved along, um, originally they were leaving the village and shots rang out. I mean, just 
when they had hardly cleared the village. So for them, it was very obvious that the village members were involved in the setup. Um, in fact, they would later find that the village chief had um, the terrorist that they'd been looking for, Don Dushefu, his number was, his cell phone number was in the village chief's phone. Um, so, and some of the guys are certain they saw some of the villagers among those that were shooting at him. So, yeah. Um, but they had barely cleared the village when the first shots rang out. And the guys honestly thought that there were only a few initially just, and they thought, okay, somebody doesn't like us. They're wanting to get off a few lucky shots and they're going to take off, you know, because the Americans just don't generally get shot at in those areas. Um, and that's what they'd kind of been told when they came into the country was, hey, if somebody shoots at you, they're going to take a couple shots and, and run back out, you know, take off into the desert. So that's kind of what they're thinking. And um, suddenly the Nigerian vehicles, because it was a by, with, and through mission, they had them, they had the Nigerian vehicles out in the lead, um, leading the convoy. So when the Nigerian vehicles in the lead heard the shots ring out, they actually slammed on their brakes and two of the vehicles backed up and caused a collision. They ran straight into the lead American vehicle mm. and another one tried to go around and ended up clipping the driver's side door of the lead American vehicle. And the whole thing came to a halt and um, basically trapped everybody on the road. So um, that's actually why Captain Perizzini got out and did a bold flanking maneuver. You know, everybody, the the um, kind of the story, according to AFRICOM and to investigators, was, oh, you know, he was a bad captain. He decided, you know, he wanted to be a cowboy and stop the um, convoy and get out and go hunt these guys down and do a bold flanking maneuver. And that's not what happened. What happened was they were stopped on the road. And he thought, well, we're stopped. Um, you guys, you know, start to get the vehicles, uh, you know, figured out. I'm going to go take out these guys um, real quick, and then we'll be back and get moving. And when he went and did the flanking maneuver with a couple of the Nigerian counterparts, he realized there's a flood of guys coming in, and they're um, trying to outflank us on the road. And he realized that if he didn't get back in time, um, they would be bottled. It was a bottleneck. So he's like, they will trap us on the road and we will all die. Um, so he went running back. And if it hadn't been for that bold flanking maneuver, they probably, um, who knows if they would have gotten out of there, any of them alive. So um, by the time he got back, you know, they, they had to collect all the Nigerian partner forces and get them going. And um, honestly, for a long time, the question was, well, why at that last truck with Dustin and Jeremiah and Brian, why were the two men walking alongside the vehicle? And um, I had found an anonymous source um, within the Pentagon who had seen a longer video of that um, head cam video. He had seen a full 53-minute version. And he said several of them had watched it. And according to what he had seen, he said, we were all certain that it was purposeful, that Brian's truck um, had been moved in a um, blocking position so that they could make sure the other trucks got out first and then they were going to try and get out. So he mm. said that's why they were walking alongside the vehicle. I see. 
Yeah, so he said, you know, that that was more of a they put themselves in harm's way to make sure that everybody else got out, and then they were just hoping they'd get lucky and get out, um, which sounds exactly like Brian. The minute he died, I thought he did something. I, you know, you know, Green Berets, it's just how they are. Right. Um, so I thought, okay, that makes more sense to me now. Um, so, and then once Brian was killed, you know, the the rest of the they just they all got overwhelmed at that truck um once the other two trucks were gone or all the other trucks were gone the other six trucks and and also the nigerian partner forces began to peel off into the desert one at a time so really um it ended up being by the time brian dustin and jeremiah because jeremiah's vehicle was stopped and those guys um had been killed there were really only, I want to say, nine or 11 at the second position trying to fight. Nine, 11, uh, nine or 11 Americans. I think there were nine Americans and uh, a couple, like, like a handful of Nigerians left. So total, okay. I, w- I want to say there were like 11. Um, yeah. And so. then uh, at that meeting, um, if I can recall correctly, they, they were trying to tell you that uh, Captain Parazzini's maneuver uh, you know was it was a he was a cowboy and and that sort of led to to the, the scenario of them getting uh, separated uh, is that correct they try to tell you that at the meeting yes I mean they made it very clear like well then he just the words were he decided to stop the vehicle and do a bold flanking maneuver there was no mention of a car wreck and the video that we saw of the cars moving, the trucks moving, sh- clo- uh, showed clearly the trucks just coming to a halt. It did not indicate a wreck. It did not indicate any vehicles be- backing up into each other. Um, and I believe those are the um, same videos that everybody saw because uh, AFRICOM also did a media brief um, after they briefed the families and they showed all those same videos so they were everywhere on all the news sites etc right so yeah so the the videos um were the only videos of the incident the helmet cam or were there other uh you know something in the sky or anything like that it was just the um just the uh head cam until the until the uh you know eventually a um, drone did come on site, but it had, it had limited sight. It, it wasn't, you know, it didn't have the infrared imaging or any of that, I don't believe. So it, it was, it was a, uh, yeah. Okay. So you have this, um, this meeting with the military. Um, and then in this meeting, you realize that there's something that they're not telling you. And, you know, you resolve yourself to figuring this out. Um, can you talk about or walk us through the process of how some of that came about? Like, you know, what were you thinking and what were you doing? Um, well, you know, after that, after that brief, I, I still had a lot of, uh, questions. And so I thought, okay, there's still going to be a media brief. I need to talk this through and be reasonable, not jump to conclusions, Um, But then there was the media brief, and in it, General Waldhauser specifically said, 
all teams on the continent are performing well, but this team is not indicative of what special operators do. Mm. And when that happened, it was kind of like that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Because that's when I realized they are blaming the entire team, including those who died, completely dishonoring them. And now they're going to punish these guys. I was thinking at any point, you know, the other shoe's going to drop. They're going to say, hey, you know, but we're not punishing anybody. And that's when I realized, no, they're completely disparaging the entire team, including my husband. And now they're going to take all these guys out. And I just, I think I just lost my temper, lost my patience with the whole thing. And I thought this isn't acceptable to do this. You know, you don't get to lead these guys into an ambush overseas and then bring them home and ambush them again. This is not okay. Right. So, and who's going to stand up for these guys? No one. No one's going to stand up for them, except they couldn't, they can't stand up for themselves because of the position they're in. Um, they'd lose their jobs. Um, they, you know, how do they stand up for themselves without having severe consequences? And that's when it occurred to me, pretty much the families are the only ones who can do anything. So I sat down with them and by then they didn't trust media. They didn't trust anyone. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And they were like, well, we don't want to get you involved. And I started, (laughs) I remember that conversation because I started laughing and I said, well, you know, um, I'm already involved. The day Brian died, I, I became involved and, um, what are they going to do to me now? Kill my husband? Lie to me? You know, put his murder on TV? Um, you know, th- there really isn't much else they can do. They could sue the widow, I guess. And we'll see how that goes. But, right. you know, at, at this point, um, somebody's got to get the truth out there. And I asked him, I said, do you want a journalist, a media person who's thrown you under the bus to do it? Or do you want me to do it? Like, who do you trust? And they were like, we trust you. And so I said, okay, well, let's see what we can make happen. So um, I started interviewing them one at a time. And what I began to learn just blew my mind. Their story completely flew in the face of what we'd been told. Um, And so I think I started those interviews in May 2018, right after General Waldhauser's media brief. And I finished them in September 2018 and um, began putting the book together. So that was my plan. And our agreement was loose. It was just, you know, nothing signed at any point. They could pull the um, pull it from under me. I just said, if you're not comfortable at any point, I don't own these interviews. You do. You know, if you decide you trust somebody else more than me, you can give it to them. Um, you know, because at that point. ABC was making a documentary and they wanted the interviews with the guys. And I said, just say the word and I'll hand these over. And they were like, no, we, you know, these are, you're who we trust. So it was like, okay. So, um, in December, 2018, I had my first article published in the New York times and that managed to get the attention of a, um, an agent, a literary agent who was just, unbelievable. Um, she, (laughs) you know, basically taught me how to write. She's an incredible human being and just so patient. And she, um, showed me how to create, um, a proposal and helped me pitch it to, um, some publishers in New York. And the next thing I knew I was signed on with, uh, gosh, Putnam. So yeah, was. So it's, you know, 
reading the book, you detail a lot of different um, situations that you've had to deal with after the fact, um, you know, situations with your kids and the school and, and just things that are just frustrating to you. And, you know, reading it just really just makes my blood boil, to be honest. Um, and, uh, you know, and to hear that the general really blamed them uh, for a scenario that, you know, the leadership sort of forced them into, um, which is a slap in the face and just disrespectful, you know. Um, but was there any pushback uh, from the government at all on the book or, or they haven't uh, said anything? Um, no, so far they haven't said anything. I think, I mean, I really don't know what to think. I'm not sure how you argue with the truth, right. you know? So, and, and that's, that's all I did is I made sure everything was just honest. This is what they said. I have several people, every piece of it, it's at least, you know, several people heard or it was, it's recorded and you can find it online. Um, and then I even used, you know, military um, rules on certain pieces too. Like, you know, when it came to here's who they held responsible for this, but this is actually the person responsible for, you know, these types of things. So when it came to like training and validation of pre-deployment training and they punished a major when in reality it had to be, you know, a lieutenant colonel who was responsible for the training. And that was the same lieutenant colonel who um, – push the team ahead so you know that there's just a lot of things where if i mean they could try and push back but i don't know that that would be a wise decision because it's all it's all stuff you can prove so right right so then you know aside from the difficulty of you know losing your husband and and having to deal with that and and raising kids and stuff um you know, this was also had become a uh, a thing in the you know the political arena, and you know once um, President Trump got involved, then of course you know anything he did, the media sort of went against him, and he went back. So then this became something different, and uh, yeah. there was a uh, you know sort of a controversial moment uh, when the, the president was speaking to the the wife of. Uh, the David Johnson, um, yeah, there was a, I forget, I'm forgetting the woman's name, but uh, there was Yeah, a, Maisha. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, and then there was also a, a politician who she'd been sort of f f uh, friends with growing up or something like that, like a f friend of the family. Yeah, I, I don't remember her name either, but yeah, she's a, a representative down in um, Miami somewhere. Yes. So, yes. And I think she was on the call or something like that on mute or she was just listening. Uh, I forget the exact circumstances. And then mm -hmm. you know, there was a big controversy around that. And, um, you know, uh, you know what Trump said or what he didn't say, you know. Um, so, you know, at that point, you know, when, when all of that is happening, um, you know, it's difficult enough to deal with everything that you have to. Uh, did that add another level or layer of difficulties to this whole situation for you? It did. Um, but I think what was harder was to watch. It, it's it's strange when it's like 
your um, situation that's being politicized. You know, and it's hard when you're watching someone who is another widow go through being attacked and being, you know, because that was the thing. The minute it became politicized, it was people attacking her personally. And for me, that was really hard because I thought she's allowed to say that she wasn't okay with what he said to her. That's fine. And, you know, when you're going through loss, it's so overwhelming. But to think that people would be so cruel as to then attack her. And I thought she's just lost her husband. She's dealing with so much. I couldn't imagine people like seeking me out and ripping me apart right now. It was so unnecessary because they are trying to protect a president who's more than capable of protecting himself. Clearly he's on YouTube or, or not YouTube, Twitter, just, you know, having a field day. So I just thought he's, he's fine. I'm sure he'll survive this, you know, <laughs> like leave her alone. Right, you know, right. whether you agree with her or not, isn't really relevant, you know? Um, so for me, that, that was really hard to watch for sure. Um, yeah. And that it had taken the focus also off of what had happened and off of the men who really, um, the men who we had lost, you know, it, it took all of that focus off of, hey, this is a huge loss right now. You know, I mean, think about the 13 who were just killed over in Afghanistan. And it's so overwhelming. And watching the heartbreak among the families is just devastating. I couldn't imagine attacking one of the moms or attacking one of the widows right now. It's so, it's it's just unbelievable to me. Um, yeah, it's unacceptable, especially when we should be focusing in on honoring the lives lost and supporting the families, no matter what their take on the response to the president is. Right, absolutely. Like it's, you know, disagree or not, you know, just whatever, you know, she's going through probably the worst time in her life. So just let her go through that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, in addition to that, then, you know, the helmet cam footage was released and, um, you know, you talk about it in the book about how that was just like a, you know, very difficult for you. Um, and then I, you know, for your children as well, because um, I believe at the time they were still small, but just old enough to, to sort of understand what was happening. Correct. They were nine and 11. And my older one is autistic. So, you know, we already battled with, he had just started getting to where he could do, you know, he could be in class all day and not have behavior issues. Um, it'd been years of therapy and, you know, speech therapy and behavioral therapy and, you know, just all that. Um, and he was finally getting to where he could function in a, in a full-time classroom without having any um, breakdowns or issues. And then Brian died. Um, and the schools in the area we lived in at the time were terrible and, um, really didn't know how to deal with a child who was going through grief, let alone an autistic child uh, on the spectrum uh, going through grief. So it just, it seemed like this pressure cooker, like the, the pressure just kept building and building at school. 
Um, and Zeke was just, everything he did was wrong and he would get suspended for days, weeks at a time. Um, and then the video comes out and he'd been suspended already for, I want to say a week or two. And I took him in that morning and I just said, I haven't slept in two days. It's his first day back at school, but this video came back out last night. I just need to breathe for a minute. Can you watch my kid for a couple hours and keep him away from screens? Just he needs to be around friends and I need to just, you know, go home and cry. And um, they go, oh, yeah, no problem. So I leave him there and I get a call within an hour or two that I need to take him home. He's suspended and they have some serious stuff they need to talk to me about. And they've been having a conversation with him. I guess I got there. He had scratched the word Niger into a computer screen. (laughs) So he had been in front of a computer. And when... I asked them why he was in front of a computer. It turned into, well, we're not concerned about that. What we're concerned about is that we think he actually meant the N-word, not Niger. And I just lost it. Um, They're like, but don't worry, Mrs. Black. We already had a conversation with him about the inappropriateness of that language and that word. And we think with his behavior lately, we're worried about him becoming violent. Uh, They just went into all of this stuff. And I thought... I don't know that I can keep myself from becoming violent much longer because this is insane. And now this is my kid. Um, So yeah, I pulled him from school that day. Yeah. I remember, um, you know, going over that part in the book and um, it's like, you don't have to be, you know, like a genius or the, the smartest person in the world to, to recognize when, you know, people are going through a difficult time uh, you know, especially if the the kid is on the the spectrum of, of autism, uh, to mm-hmm. sort of give him some breathing room and you know, yeah. you know, give him some leeway. And it's I, going over that part. I was I just I couldn't believe it. And it was one of many points in the book. Going, you know, reading through different sections of it and and just getting upset and and angry uh, at, at you know what I'm reading. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think the hardest part for me was that it was a very small school and Fayetteville isn't a big town. It's it's all military. And, you know, with third group there, they all knew exactly what had been going on and what had happened. And everyone was very aware. They just didn't care because he wasn't behaving the way they felt he should behave. And I just thought this is this is insane. There was no there was complete disregard for what was actually going on in our lives and that we didn't just get over it in a week, you know, and go back to normal. So, and, uh, how, how much longer did you stay in, um, in favor? Um, I left the following October. I thought I would give myself a year. Um, and then I just, my whole family's on the West coast and, I thought, you know, the kids need to be raised near Brian's parents. That's what he would want. So um, we're, we moved to Washington State right after that. Mm, and you've been there since? Yes. Okay, so recently um, uh, France uh, had killed an Islamic State leader uh, who they believe is responsible for 
the operation uh, in 2017 that uh, killed four Americans, your husband included. Uh, a guy named Adnan Abu Walid Al Sawari. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and this was very recently, a couple of weeks ago, I think. Um, yeah, about, yes. yeah, about a week, a week and a half ago. Um, so there, and then this sort of goes back to, you know, the French sending their, their, their fighter jets to sort of fly over the, the area that the ambush took place in. Um, and, you know, I've, I've known, I've <clears throat> had a guy on who, um, he's a retired French special forces guy and the the vast majority of his like combat experience um is in Africa and um you know he'd worked with Americans previously and uh, but yeah the, their focus is heavily on Africa um what did you think when you um heard heard about this um several things you know to have one less evil person who is planning, you know, who basically his life is to plot deaths. I mean, glad to have him gone. Um, you know, also very grateful to the French. The French do incredible things. I love, um, I mean, they're one of our oldest allies. You know, they helped us, what, defeat the uh, English way back when we were trying to, um, you know, gain independence from Britain. So they're one of our oldest and most important allies. So I know, you know, the team, um, uh, Brian's team members, um, after making it out, were so grateful to the French and have stayed in contact with some of them. Um, So, you know, I was very grateful to the French for what they did. Really happy to have them as as our ally. Um, but, you know, in the end, I, um, and, you know, for those who say, oh, well, why was it the French and not the Americans? Well, it's who's in the area and what are they doing? You know, and like you said, the French are very active They're, you know, they've got a base in, um, what, Burkina Faso and they're down in Ouagadougou and they've got like large bases in all of these places. So they're very active on that continent. Um, in those areas. So that makes sense to me, um, especially if we, we don't have a large presence there, not like the French do. And that's why they made such a great ally when we're working in that region. Um, but also, um, you know, when I think about um, what is the real justice, um, for me, the real justice would be to actually get the truth behind the Niger ambush from our own government and leadership that would be nice that to me would be real justice yeah it's it's you know to think that you know they're gonna blame the team and the you know the junior officers who are leading the team uh, when clearly that's not what happened um it it really is disgusting uh you know um just hearing about it, reading about it is just, it just, you know, makes me angry. And then, um, I mean, just recently, uh, sort of switching directions, there was a, I, I guess he was a teenager or a, a kid, or I'm not sure that he sort of had this, uh, video game scenario he created on YouTube, sort of recreating the, the ambush. Right. Um, but then he eventually took it down, though, due to sort of you know, pressure applied um, 
from the online sort of military community. Um, so was he a teenager or something like that? He was a college student. Um, and to be honest, uh, there is a, um, what would you call it, a mod called Arma 3. And what they do is they create these real-life scenarios. And then these guys, like this this um, uh, this 20-something, he went into Arma 3, took their Niger ambush scenario, and created the um, video game with it. So there are actually quite a few more because Arma 3 has created this mod, this Niger Ambush mod. And they're actually, um, they're on the Steam um, platform. So I've been trying to dig and figure out, okay, how do we prevent people from making a game out of my husband's death? Because I guarantee you, if there was a game where you got to fly airplanes, you know, 747s into buildings, there would be something very wrong with that, um, and everybody would recognize it. So I don't know why they don't recognize that building a video game based off the death of three Americans is not acceptable. So I'm trying to um, pin that down now. But yes, um, fortunately, the when I spoke to the guy um, privately, he was pretty horrified. I think sometimes these kids, they get caught up in this virtual world and they assume, you know, you're either their friend or you're a troll, which is just somebody who hates them for no reason. And they don't realize that these are legitimate people related to incidents who have um, real justifiable concerns. And when he realized he was speaking to the widow and the children of one of the fallen um, and that we were actually upset. He was pretty uh, horrified and was profusely apologizing and um, yeah, trying to make it right. So I, I am not sure how to respond to a game being made out of my husband's death. And I'm hoping I can find a way to contact Arma um, and have them pull that down or steam and have them delist Arma 3. We'll see. The, um, the children uh, who, who commented on the video, those were the, the children of Jeremiah Johnson? Yes. Okay. And was it, did somebody bring it to your attention or did you speak to the, the kids directly? Uh, what happened was my son came up to me and said, hey, mom, you know, I saw this video online of the Niger ambush. What's that all about? And I kind of went, oh, wow. OK, so I went up and found it. And that's when I realized, you know, this has been up for about eight months. And there's actually a lot of these videos. This particular one was bad because the um, Johnson girls had gotten on there and asked him to remove it and had been treated so poorly um, in the comments section, had just been torn to pieces by all of the different, um, I guess, fans of the game who told them things like they should not grieve their dad because he was a hero um, and other, <laughs> just all sorts of horrible things. Um, so that's how I found out about it. And when I saw that, I thought I at least want to take this down and get an apology from this guy and his followers. 
and hopefully kind of show them that this this is why this is a problem. And so um, we'll see. Um, hopefully, yeah. I don't know. So you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, when I talked about the, the French had killed this guy, that, you know, for you... A part of the sort of justice of this for the situation would be if the right people were, um, you know, the army admitted that mistakes were made from higher up and people were, you know, appropriately reprimanded for that. Um, so let's say that, you know, that doesn't ever happen and it's possible that it won't. Um, you know the what I would say to the audience is that everyone should um, purchase uh, this book and you know learn about you know what sacrifices and and um, learn about you know in my opinion one of the the biggest lessons of the book is is dealing with adversity uh, in addition to you know, uncovering the truth of what really happened. Um, so, you know, I, I want to uh, encourage the audience to uh, get a copy of the book. It's called Sacrifice, A Gold Star Widow's Fight for the Truth uh, by Michelle Black. Uh, Michelle, I want to thank you so much for um, coming on here. Uh, you know, I think this podcast will be very valuable. Um, you know, ever since the incident happened, and, uh, you know, i I make sure to post a couple times a year, you know, remind people not to forget these guys and um, and sort of keep the memory alive. And um, so people who listen, people who follow on the social medias, you know, check the book out. And Michelle, if there's anywhere or any way or place that people can sort of keep up with what you've got going on, where can they go to do that? Um, I am on Facebook at author Michelle Black. I am also on um, Instagram at Michelle Black 71. So, and pretty much, I mean, I don't do Twitter and um, TikTok a ton, but I do a little bit. And again, both of those, it's Michelle Black 71. So, those are, and you can always also just go on my website at MichelleBlackSacrifice.com. So. Yeah. Okay, and can they get? Can they also get copies of the book from the website? They can. I have links to where you can buy them, and you can buy these books um, anywhere that books are sold. There's an Audible version. Mm -hmm. There's a Kindle version. Um, there's hardback. I'll have paperback coming out in the spring. Um, so yeah, and I mean you can find them, you know, even at your local Barnes and Noble if you prefer. So they're they're everywhere. Awesome. So. You know, again, I want to thank you for coming on here. I know we were uh, trying to do this for a while, but I'm glad we were finally able to, to make it happen. Same. Thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed speaking about this. So I appreciate it.
Thank mm-hmm. you.